0: good morning. As we, uh, we continue our look at the book of Romans, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3 this week, and uh, we're going to look at Romans 3, verses 1 to 20. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up and follow along in there. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your order of worship, and you can follow along there. Um, but uh, remember that the book of Romans, uh, more than any other book in the Bible, I would say, is gives us a, 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 the most thorough and detailed explanation of the gospel. By the gospel, I mean the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done and why that makes all the difference for us in every aspect of life. And so it gives us this thorough and detailed understanding of the gospel. And as you begin reading Romans, as we've looked at Romans, the first three chapters, or the first two chapters, and now the third chapter, hopefully one of the things that's becoming clear to you, is that um, in order to understand the good news of the gospel, we need first to understand why we desperately need it, why we desperately need the good news. And so, the first few chapters talk a lot about sin. They talk a lot about all of our sin, and um, and and so I encourage you to listen to God's word and. Listen for what God wants to say to you by His Spirit. As I read, as, uh, as you listen, um, we just sang that song, Be Still, and know that God is God, right? And uh, for much of the song, we had someone crying out <laughs> as we were singing Be Still. And I think it was really appropriate because that really is an illustration of the fact of how hard it is for all of us to be still. We all fight. We all fight and scream and kick and so that's why we need to ask him to help us. So let's pray and ask him to help us to be still now and listen. Father, we, we, uh, we come to you this morning and we recognize the fact that um, we need to uh, be quiet and listen to what you say. We need to be still and let your spirit do surgery on our hearts. And we, we need you to open our eyes to see how glorious Jesus is. So Father, we thank you that you meet us here by your spirit. And, uh, and, and we thank you that, uh, that it's not up to us, but it's up to you to show us more of yourself. And uh, we, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen if you can picture it, there's uh, several men in gray uniforms with these gray hats standing behind a thick pane of glass. And, uh, and one of them gra- reaches up and grabs a lever and pulls it down. And the lights dim, and you hear this whirring, humming sound that gets louder and louder and louder. And on the other side of the pane of glass, there is on the floor a plate of bananas. And standing in front of the bananas is a big, huge elephant and the elephant is staring across the bananas at this silver metallic gun that's glowing brighter and brighter. And eventually, this beam of blue light shoots out from the gun and hits the elephant square between the eyes. And the elephant kind of levitates for a second, and then his ear shrinks, and then his head shrinks, and then his legs shrink, and his body shrinks, and he just kind of disappears. And then... The, the blue beam of, beam of light goes away, and the lights come back on, and the guys in gray uniform, you know, they, they look through the window, and uh, prancing out from behind the bananas is this little tiny elephant now. He's been shrunk to just the size of, you know, just, just a couple inches high. And this is a scene, if you've ever seen it, from the movie Despicable Me. Anybody recognize that, that scene? Um, and, uh, and the movie, m- part of the plot of the movie revolves around all of these villains trying to get their hands on this gun. It's called a shrink ray that it shrinks whatever you point it at, you know, no matter how big and unwieldy it is, it shrinks it down to something that is small and something that is very manageable and easy to, to handle. And, and so the goal of these villains is to eventually steal the moon. They're planning on using the shrink ray to, to shrink the moon down to a size that they can just, you know, put in their pocket or hide somewhere. Um, that's their big nefarious plan. Um, this is why Paul writes the first three chapters of Romans. Because I would say that uh, he writes it because he knows that everyone reading this has used a shrink ray on our sin. We've, we've When it comes to our sin, we've shrunk it down to a size that is manageable. Um, a size that doesn't really force us to have to deal with it all that much. And by sin, what do I mean? I I mean all of the ways that we fail to live up to God's desires for us. All of the ways that we fail to to live the lives that God created us to live. Uh, To love him as we should love him. To love others as we should love them. Um, By sin, I'm talking about the ways that our hearts are, are bent and twisted and turned inward on ourselves. First and foremost, and we think first and foremost of ourselves before, before God and before others. And uh, this is a massive, massive problem is what the Bible tells us. And yet, for many of us, we've shrunk that problem down to a size that is manageable. And the problem is, though, and, and this is why, as Paul writes the first three chapters of, of Romans, he's focused so much on sin, if you've noticed, the past few weeks. Maybe you've been like, I'm getting tired of coming to church and just hearing about how sinful I am. But but it's so crucial for us to understand how massive a problem our sin is because if we don't understand how big of a problem we have, then we will not seek the solution. We will not understand the solution that God has given us in Jesus. And so I want to look at these verses, these 20 verses of chapter 3, and and think about Um, I think this, these, these verses address ways that we have shrunk our sin down um, and tells us how to respond to it. Um, first of all, I, I think one of the ways, I, when we think our sin is small, it's, it's easy for us, we're content to ignore our sin. I mean, that, that's just kind of a, a natural kind of rule of life. When things are small, it's easier to ignore them. Isn't that true? I mean, often when there's a, a big family with a lot of kids, it's, it's way easier to forget about the smallest one. Have you ever uh, come across a family who has been at a big function and then they leave and they leave a child behind because they've forgotten about them? You know, the smallest one is often easy to forget. Um, when there's, you know, a, a small little mistake in a manuscript, it's easy for, easy for the editor to miss that little tiny mistake and for it to make it to publication. Um, I remember... Many years ago when I used to like balance our checkbook by hand, you know, and and I'd get the bank statement and I'd like, you know, do all the math and and occasionally it would be like two cents off this little tiny little margin where my checkbook didn't match the bank statement. And I was like, okay, I could spend like two hours trying to figure out where these two cents went. Or I could just take the the bank's word for it and just, you know, scratch it out and we'll deal with that. You know, it's, it's it's easy to ignore things that are small. And I think for us, a lot of us, for most of us, we look at our sin, we look at the ways that we fail in life, and we just kind of assume that, that, that all of us, just, we just make kind of small mistakes, you know? I said a careless word yesterday, oh, well, you know, oh well. Um, you know, I usually tell the truth about things, I'm usually very honest, but I made this like, little small lie, white lie, it's no big deal. Um, we, we kind of just focus on these little small things that we think we do, and so it's easy to just ignore the fact that we have a problem, that, we're actually, uh, that there's actually something really seriously wrong with our hearts. But did you listen to this passage? Um, well, you didn't, because I didn't read it, did I? <laughs> Man. Well, let's read it. That would be smart. <laughs> Listen to this passage as I read it. Um, just to remind you, the, the, the end of chapter two, Paul ends by, saying, talk, by talking about circumcision, and he's, and he's talking to the Jews especially, to the religious people who have all these rituals, including circumcision, and he said, you know it, what, it, it doesn't matter if you've been circumcised on the outside, what matters is if you've been circumcised in the heart. Okay? And, and, and so this is, this is how they might respond. He says this. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right, this is God's word. Now that's just a, a symptom of my own sin, that I was eager to get to my own words and forget about God's words. Sin is a serious problem. So did you notice, especially as we looked at verses nine through 18, did you hear the way that Paul painted humanity and this problem of sin? And I'm gonna read it again. He says, um, he says, we already charge that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then he quotes a bunch of verses from the Old Testament. A lot of them are from Psalm 14. He says this, none is righteous, no, not one. He uses a lot of very extreme language, right? Nobody, all are under sin. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a very extreme and pervasive picture of what sin is and how bad all of humanity is, Right? And it it contaminates every aspect of humanity. He talks about the understanding, that it it infects the understanding of people. It infects the the will. No one seeks after God. No one seeks for what we should. No one desires for what we should. It impacts the things that we do. No one does good. Our actions, the things that we say, he spends several verses on our throats, our mouths, our lips, right? And, and the misery that we produce all around us. It's, it's a very comprehensive picture of the entire person and how sin impacts every aspect of who we are. He uses several different body parts to kind of communicate the fact that, that sin impacts every aspect of us, right? He talks about um, our, our throats, he talks about our lips, he talks about our mouths, he talks about our feet, he talks about our eyes. This sin problem isn't just, you know, sectioned off to one little aspect of our lives, one little part of us, it encompasses every aspect of us and contaminates everything. And then he says this in verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that the whole world may be, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so what he's saying here, he's just quoted a bunch of verses from the Old Testament. And so when he says, now we know that whatever the law says, when he talks about the law, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's, talking, he's, using, he's using that word to refer to the entire uh, revelation from God that's been given to the, to the Jews, the Old Testament. So all of these verses that he's quoted as just a sample of the Old Testament, he's saying, this is what the law says. This is what God's revelation has said. And he says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He says, whatever it says, it speaks to those who have it to those who have, who have been given it. So, so a Jewish person might you know, hear Paul quote all these verses, and again, like I've been saying the last couple of weeks, being like, yeah, the world is awful. These, these people are so terrible. But then Paul says, no, these verses are talking about you, the religious people. That's who these verses are directed towards. They're directed towards the people who have them. And so, of course, you know who he's talking about? He's talking about you and me the people who are sitting in church, the religious people, the people who have God's revelation, God's words here. Whatever God's words say, he says them to us. These verses are meant for us. And yet you might say, well, wait a second, that sounds really extreme. I, I, I mean, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. I mean, we're all here in church. How can you say that none of us are seeking God? Right? That's a good question. I think there's plenty of people, including us, throughout the world who are, who are seeking a deeper spirituality, a seeking, you know, something that God gives. But I would argue that primarily the things that we seek are the things that God provides. Greater comfort, greater peace, greater joy, greater security, we, we are seeking what God can give us rather than God himself. None of us are just seeking God for God's sake alone. To know him, to enjoy him, as we just read earlier. What's our chief purpose in life? To know God and enjoy him forever. How many of us are really seeking God? And that's really the goal of our life, just seeking God to enjoy him, that's it. Pretty much most of us are just seeking God for what we can get out of him. I would say all of us are, really, some level or another. You might hear it say, you know, no one does good. How can you say that? I see people all the time doing good throughout the world. You know, I, I did something good yesterday. I was nice. I held a door for somebody. And that's true. There's all sorts of good acts that are happening all over the world, all the time, in our lives. We're doing good things. But one of the things that the Bible points out is that the only truly good things that are done are done from a perfect motive. I mean, how many of us are actually, the, the good things that we do, we do them purely because we love God and because we wanna love somebody else. So many of our good deeds are mixed with all sorts of different motives, you know, to be seen by others for, because we're afraid of what it might look like if we not, if we don't do something good, you know. Because I'm afraid that I'm gonna look like a jerk if I don't hold the door, right? Um, none of us do good with, a, with the purely unmixed motive of loving God and loving other people. And then, but then what about this, this way that it describes our, our words, the things that come out of our mouths, you know? The venom of asps is under their lips. I mean, I wouldn't say that that really describes me, does it? Our feet are swift to shed blood, and the path, in, in their paths are ruin and misery. I'm, I, I doubt that as you guys walked in here this morning, you'd probably say, as I walked in, I mean, everybody behind me was smiling. There wasn't ruin and misery. And yet, at a heart level, I think all of us are not innocent of leaving destruction in our wake in the ways that we've failed to love the people around us in the ways that we've, and, and the things that we've spoken to the people around us. How many of us are only speaking things that create life and beauty and joy in the lives of the people around us? We have a, a real serious problem and these verses are talking about us. He's saying, you cannot ignore this. You cannot ignore this. It's a problem that is too big to be ignored. Um, Another result of thinking our sin is small is that we have a tendency to try to talk over our sin. We try to talk over our sin. The the other night we were at our dinner table and um, Cass, uh, Silas' wife, has been gone for a few days on a business trip and so Silas came over and had dinner with us. So it was me and Kim and six boys around the dinner table. And as you can imagine, you can probably imagine, um, often there's multiple conversations going on at the same time. And all of our boys have a real capacity for, for being loud. And, and so as these conversations are going on, everybody's just like, I just need to be louder than the person next to me so that my voice can be heard. And it gets louder, and it got louder, and it got louder. And there's just one point, I look across the table at Kim, and I just see just this look of, Just sheer, just, I don't know if it was like desperation or just like giving up, hopelessness. She's just like, help me, you know? How did we get here? It was just, it's like, it was torturous. It's just so loud. Because everybody thinks they can talk over the person next to them. And I think that's, we have a tendency to do that with, with our sin, with the things that we do wrong in our lives, and, and you see that, I think you see that in the first eight verses in this chapter. Um, so Paul's been talking um, about how all people are sinful, all people have turned away from God. And, he's, and, and in chapter two, he's zeroed in on the religious people, the Jewish people who have all of God's laws and rituals, and he's like, you guys are sinners too. And then, basically the first eight verses of chapter three, what Paul does is he's like, I know what you're going to try to say to me. I know the questions you're going to try to ask. And so he asks question after question after question because he says, he, he knows in his mind, these are the questions that the Jewish people are going to be bringing up to him in response to what he's just said. And Paul knows these questions well because, well, he grew up a, a Jew among Jews, right? He, he probably had these questions himself as he was coming to understand the gospel, as he was coming to understand his own sinfulness. And he's been sharing the gospel with all sorts of other Jewish people in different synagogues all over the world. And and so he's heard these questions many times. He knows as he tells people they're sinful, they're going to respond this way. They're going to start asking questions in order to try to to, to excuse their sin, in order to try to blame their sin on somebody else. I mean, listen to the the questions they ask. So the first question he knows they're going to ask, he's like, so then what advantage has the Jew? He's just told them, you know, being circumcised outwardly isn't going to help you. You need to be circumcised inwardly. And so he realizes that the Jewish people are going to be like, well, then what's the point? Why why, why have we been doing all these things? If these things don't, you know, earn us favor with God, if these things don't, you know, say that we have God's favor, then what's the point? What's the point? Why does God tell us to do these things? And he says, you know, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God has revealed himself to you. All of, these, all of these laws, all of these rituals are a sign of God's love for you. That he's shown himself to you. And yet you're trying to you know, excuse your sin away. And then he says, you know, what, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What they're saying is, you know, well, if, if this was part of God's plan, if God was you know, going to choose the, 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 the Jewish people to be his people and they failed, doesn't that reflect badly on God? Does that mean he's really actually the one to blame? And and so they're trying to blame their sin on God. And he's like, what are you talking about? God can't be faithless. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then they say, you know, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Like so, but then they're going to be like, well, if, if, if my sinfulness highlights God's righteousness, then you know, how can you really blame me? Can't you just kind of leave me alone? Why do you have to condemn me for that? It's just kind of this human argument, this human-centered argument. He's like, no, God has to bring justice against sin. And then in verse 7, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If, if, if the things I do wrong highlight God's greatness, why, you know, how can you condemn me? Why can't you just let me just keep doing more wrong stuff and let me just, you know, and let God just show himself to be great, to show himself to be glorious? And he's like, that's just a bunch of nonsense. Their condemnation is just. And, and I think what Paul is showing us is this tendency that all of us have when it comes to our sin We think that we can talk over our sin, that we can find excuses for our sin, that we can find people to blame for our sin, whether it's God or others. We can just use our own human-centered philosophy to kind of rationalize our, our sin away. Have you noticed that in your own life? Have you noticed yourself doing that? I guarantee you that you all do it. I do it myself. If we don't blame God, we blame others. You know, I wouldn't have acted that way if that person hadn't been so a jerk for such a long time. I lost my temper, right? I blame it on them. I make excuses for my sin. You know, this week has been really stressful. I've been under a lot of pressure. That's why I lost my temper. That's why I yelled. It's because, you know, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm worn out. We make excuses for our sin. We try to come up with just, you know, we succumb to just the philosophy of, of this man-centered philosophy that says, you know, well, you know no, we're, not, we're not really sinful. We just, we just like to focus on the fact that we're just imperfect. Nobody's perfect, right? We all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. You can't really be judged for being imperfect. We try to talk over our sin. And, and Paul says, you know, in verse 19, he reminds us, the only response to, to being pointed out your sin The only response is in verse 19. He says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Silence. When we begin to understand our sin, when somebody else points out our sin, really the only response is to be quiet. (laughs) Instead of trying to defend ourselves, instead of trying to excuse ourselves, instead of trying to blame others. You know, doesn't that get annoying when somebody apologizes to you, but then they continue talking and they're like, but, you know, they, they try to come up with all these mitigating ex- circumstances for why they, you know, hurt you. What you really want from them is just to be like, I'm sorry. I was wrong. And leave it at that and just shut their mouth. That's the right response to really owning our sin. Lastly, I think uh, a lot of us think that our sin is so small that we can out-muscle it. Um, our 10-year-old son loves playing soccer with our 8-year-old son because he's bigger and he's faster and he's stronger. And so they play in the backyard and it's just so easy for him to, to run past him and get the ball or if, if our 8-year-old has the ball, just to push him off the ball and take it from him. You've got to give our 8-year-old some credit that he keeps going out there and playing. But, uh, but you know, our 10-year-old just loves doing it because he's stronger no matter how good the little one gets, he can just you know push him away. He can use his strength to triumph, and I think maybe that's all another way that we look at our own sin, our own brokenness, our own failures. We think that um, that yeah, I've done some things wrong, but if I try really hard, if I muster the strength to do enough things that are good, then I can push the sinful stuff to the side and God will love me and accept me and I will be justified because I can do enough good. Because I can do enough, I can serve enough, I can sacrifice enough. I can muster up enough generosity, compassion, thoughtfulness. I, that, I think we, we, we tend to think that if we do enough good things, we can outmuscle our sin and, and the good things will, will push the sin aside and, and, and so God will be like, okay, you're good. But what does, uh, what does Paul say in verse 20, as he sums up this whole passage? He says, after he's told them, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Then he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That first half of that verse. He says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He can't say it any more simply or clearly. When he says works of the law, he's talking about good things we do. Ways that we obey God. Ways that we think, things that we do that we think God's going to be pleased with. Being kind to people. Serving others. Doing religious things. None of those things will ever be Enough to justify us. None of those things will ever be enough to earn God's forgiveness and grace and love. None of those things. He can't say it any more clearly. Our sin problem is so big that the only way that we can deal with it is if God does something for us. We can't do it ourselves. We can't muster up enough determination and strength to be nice enough for long enough with a perfect motive. None of us can do it. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We we need to come to terms with this fact, especially those of us who are sitting here right now, because we're probably the most most likely to think that, that if we do enough good things, then God's gonna love us more but we can't. We can't do enough good things. Our sin is so offensive to God. It's such a massive problem. We need God to deal with it for us. And that's what the rest of the book of Romans is about, is how God has dealt with our problem for us by sending his son to live and to die and to rise again. It says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, but the reality is there is one human being, but he wasn't purely a human being. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, who actually did justify himself in God's sight, who is worthy of God's love because he perfectly obeyed. He perfectly did everything with a perfect motive, and that's how God saves us. It's through the work of Jesus coming into our world, living the life that we're incapable of living, and dying to pay for our sin. And so we need to come to the point where we realize I cannot deal with my sin on my own. We need to come to the point where we don't just kind of see our sin is so small that it's easy to ignore, that it's easy to talk over, that we can do enough good to erase it. We need to come to the point where we see that our sin is is massive and oppressive. It's not just all the stuff that I do, but it's deep down in me. And I can't change it. In my, own, in my own strength. And that's why he, he, he finishes with this, this line, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I, I, we have this, this tendency to, to, you know, God has given us the Bible, he's given us commands, he's given us laws, you know, in order to help us understand how to live life perfectly. But the problem is we, we tend to think that, you know, that, that's now how I have to just live life. I have to focus on what God tells me to do and I have to just try really hard to do it. And it's true that God has given us commands in order to know what he wants. And it's, and it's a good thing to try to do what he wants. But we need to realize that, that trying to do what he wants will never make us acceptable to him. And so what we need to know, the, 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 the first purpose of God's laws that he's given us isn't to help us know how to live perfectly, it's help us to know how sinful we are. That's what he says, right? He says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is why he gives us his word. That is one of the primary reasons he gives us his word is so that we will know how sinful we are. So that we will look at a passage like like Romans 3, 11 to 18, and we will look at our own hearts and say, how is this applying to me? That's why God gives us his his law, to teach us how desperately we need him. And this is probably the biggest challenge for us. Um, I, I remember when I went, first went to high school, and in high school, you, in my high school, I think probably most high schools, you get to at least pick some of your classes. There's the thing called electives, right? You get to pick what you want to take to learn. I remember picking, uh, you know, being so excited, I got to pick to take mechanical drawing. And, and I signed up for a cooking class. You'd never know it today that I had a cooking class in my life. But how much cooking can you really learn when you're a 10th grader? Probably a lot. I don't know. I'm not that quick. But then you get to college and then, and then it even widens up more and you get to pick you know, your major. You get to pick what you want to study. And the whole purpose of picking these classes is because you want to learn things that will help, well, help you master that subject. You want to learn knowledge. You want to learn skills that will help you master this thing that will make you more marketable in the future, right? Well, this is the problem the, for us. The gospel tells us That the class that we need to sign up for before we sign up for any other class is the class that teaches us how sinful we are. The class that teaches us how desperately we need Jesus. That's the class that we need to master before any other class. That's that's what the Book of Romans tells us. And that's why he spends several chapters here at the beginning. You need to learn. You need to learn just how much you need to be forgiven because it's only when you learn how much you need to be forgiven, it's only when you learn how powerful your sin is that you will really be in a position to understand how great of a Savior Jesus is. And that is what makes all the difference. The bigness of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus and his love for you. And the fact that, as we're going to read in in just a few minutes, this this verse, Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the good news. Are you willing to own up to your sin, to how big it is? Are you willing to just shut your mouth and be quiet (laughs) and receive his grace? That is what he wants to show you. That is what he wants to show you, just how desperate you are and how good he is. Let's pray.